Thank you. Well, happy Resurrection Day. Our passage today is Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. So I want to encourage you to turn there and stand as we hear some good news this morning. Romans 8, verses 1 and following, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words. Thank you for this building conclusion to what we've been learning so far in the first half of Romans. And Lord, I pray that you would enlighten our minds, cheer our hearts, encourage our wills to live according to the Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this first half of Romans 8 summarizes many of the things that we hear in the first seven chapters. And so some of the points in chapter 8 may seem a little repetitive, but I think you'll find that the conclusions that Paul makes are profound. With regard to what we've already heard in the first half of Romans, the initial verses of chapter 8 remind us that we have been set free from the law of sin and death. And as we learn in chapter 7, the law in its perfect, unmoving holiness, that mountain of holiness cannot in itself produce good fruit in us. That was a startling conclusion from last week. As beautiful as it is, as Holy as it is, it can only condemn. 
And it is unyielding in its perfection. In its perfection of holiness and what it reveals, which is our sin. And, and what's worse, when confronted with God's commands, what we learned was that Paul says that sin wakes up. Sin actually, if it was dormant at all, it wakes up and is aroused even more. Arousing our own desires to break the law. And as a result, we ironically don't improve by knowing God's standards, but sadly, instead, we get even worse. No wonder at the end of chapter 7, Paul exclaims, O wretched man that I am, who will save me? Well, the good news of Easter is that God came to our rescue. As verses 2 through 4 state, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That is good news indeed. We could not fulfill the law, but Jesus could, and He did. As Paul says, Jesus fulfilled the law and then died for us so that that righteous requirement of the law would be fulfilled in us. And so there is now no condemnation against those who are in Christ. And that, my friends, is wonderful news. And we'll talk this morning about three natural conclusions that result from this amazing gift of God. The first conclusion I'm going to make is from verses 15 to 17. That's at the end of the passage where we read, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have instead received the spirit of adoption as sons. You know, what it does is that spirit of adoption bears witness to your spirit that you are children, that you are heirs of God, fellow heirs of Christ. And Paul says, so friends, the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in you, through Christ, who first obeyed the law perfectly, and then second, through the fact that his righteousness has been applied to you, having died on your behalf on the cross. And what he draws as a conclusion from that is that there is no more condemnation of those who are his. Paul says, you've been given the spirit of adoption, and it's contrasted with a spirit of fear. Now, on a very simple level, that means that you don't have to keep beating yourself up over whether you will be good enough for God. You can stop rehearsing in your mind all of the wrong and bad and damaging things that you have done in the past. You can stop reminding yourself of how you will never live up to the law and its perfect expectations, at least this side of heaven. And how you aren't like so-and-so who seems like such a more mature believer. All of that, friends, is slavery. Slavery to a fear that you don't measure up. That you will one day be condemned by God for your sins. Or at least condemned for your inadequacies. And so I have good news for you. There is no condemnation in Christ. Did you hear that? There's no condemnation in Christ. Not even a little. 
There is only the Father's good favor upon you, for you have been adopted as his son or as his daughter. The ink is dry. The adoption is final. Your inheritance has been declared. The earth and heavens and everything in them are yours. You are beloved by the Father. You are a joint heir with his Son, Jesus Christ. Just let that first conclusion wave over you. Wash over you. And keep that in mind as we look at the second conclusion found in verse 9. Where Paul says, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, said in another way, if you are a believer, if you have recognized your sin, the need for a Savior, if you believe, confess that the only Savior available to you is Jesus Christ, and that as the incarnate Son of God, He not only came to save you from your sin, but actually did so in dying on the cross. If that's what you believe and profess, then you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And to best understand what that means, we have to understand what Paul is drawing as a difference between those two. There's a natural temptation that arises from this passage. You see, when, when people make a contrast between two things, they say, and say, do this one and not do the other, just as Paul says, to walk in the Spirit but not in the flesh, it's often a temptation to think that the one option, which is walking in the Spirit, is absolutely good, while the other, sowing to the flesh, is absolutely bad. And in this case, what we would do then is we might think that everything pertaining to the flesh is bad. And so we need to escape the physical world. And that was a temptation that led the monks, for example, to isolate themselves from society. It was a temptation that fueled ancient heresies like Gnosticism that taught that everything pertaining to the body of physical to the flesh in general was bad. But the Bible doesn't support that attitude. Jesus rose with an imperishable body, right? An imperishable body that has physical properties. And that same kind of resurrection body is promised to you one day. God created Adam and Eve and the physical world and said that all was very good, right? He promises even to make a new heaven and a new earth. Boy, throw Gnosticism on its head when, when you hear that. The new heavens and the new earth. Heaven is not just some ghostly realm of the supernatural and spiritual. That's why when we look at Romans 8, we need to be careful to understand that Paul is not distinguishing between the physical and the spiritual. He is distinguishing between having our minds set upon those that lead us to sin with our bodies, which Paul describes as fleshly attitudes against those that lead us to glorify God with our bodies which he describes as spiritual attitudes. It's important to understand that difference. So in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, Paul makes this statement. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. So with your spirit, and with your body. We must do both. And because we are not our own and we were bought with a price, 
We are to be responsible stewards of God's creation. How many Christians talk about taking dominion over God's creation and yet fail to realize that they haven't even mastered their own bodies yet? How do we glorify God in our body? We train our minds to live according to the Spirit. We must discipline our bodies to control the desires of the flesh that would seek to master us. That's why in that same book in, or letter in 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27, Paul writes about disciplining the body. And this is familiar to many of you. Do you not know that in a race that all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable prize or wreath, but we an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. I was noticing this week that a junior runner, which in the world of running means a boy or a girl aged 16 to 19, for the first time in history this week, did you see that? Broke the 10-second barrier in the 100 meters. So I can only imagine what it would be like to have that kind of speed. But you, you see it, right, as they come out of the starting blocks. They're all at the same spot, and yet there's just something different about the one that just pulls away, and everybody else looks like they were supposed to be in a different race, right? Well, of the many runners who compete, Paul says that only one gets the gold medal. Only one gets to stand on the victory box in the Olympics and see his or her flag raised as that national anthem is played. And Paul says, run that way. Run that way. And that's what Paul is talking about when he says in Romans 8, to walk according to the Spirit. It's important that you understand that. This isn't just kind of a generic statement of, you know, I think sometimes we read chapter 8 and we just say, walk according to the Spirit, and we think that's an easy thing. It's just a thing that happens naturally as a part of the Christian. And, and we read those words, and we don't even think about what it asks of us or what it means. But if you combine it with something like this of 1 Corinthians 9 and other passages, you realize walking in the Spirit is a commitment, isn't it? It's a mindset. It's running in such a way, keeping our eyes fixed on the things of the Spirit with the finish line, the goal in mind. We are to train ourselves as people who intend not only to get there at the end, but to win. Have you heard the principle that to master something, you have to spend a thousand hours doing it? it tells us that the need for training is not confined just to athletics. It's required for people to learn to play the piano or to learn a new language or to run a business. When we were getting ready to go to China and pick up hope, we had these great thoughts of learning some basic Mandarin to be ready to at least communicate with hope when we saw her. And we started listening to those first lessons about voice inflections in Chinese and how even the same words can mean different things when they are inflected differently in a raising of the pitch or a lowering of the pitch. And so we got stuck 
in one hour of those thousand hours, I'll worship on Daniel, which means my name is Daniel Wong. And that's what we knew. <laughs> we knew that really, really well. We realized it's going to be 999 more hours of this to move beyond my name is Daniel Wong. But at least we could all say the same thing, right? So we took signing times over to communicate with hope. Well, in 1 Timothy 4.7, Paul says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, but rather train yourself for godliness. How many of you like to exercise? It's hard. It's easy to try. It's easy to have the the thought of, I'm going to buy all the materials that I need. How many of you during COVID went out and bought the the at-home exercise machines because all the gyms were closed, right? We, We bought a total body fitness machine and you know it's it's good and easy to buy all of the machinery and the diet books and the new clothing but to actually make those meals that don't taste as good don't fill the belly quite as much to carve out the time of the day to get out and run especially as you start to get up and you feel all achy and you think oh what is this going to require of me to go out and get on the bicycle or, or to run or to hike or whatever it is or to swim? It's all tremendously hard. It requires a life perspective change. Well, in our passage, Paul tells us that to set our mind on the things of the flesh, to walk according to the principles of the lust of the eyes and of the flesh and of the pride of life is to invite death. So friends, this isn't just about putting on extra pounds or losing extra pounds or feeling better, you know, more energy throughout the day. This is eternal life, eternal death. And the reality, as I said, is that there is no condemnation in Christ, but that does not then give us license to not care. Quite the opposite, if you belong to God and his spirit is in you, then you will not want to keep sowing to the flesh. And that's why Paul says, don't do it. Don't walk in the flesh. You have to exercise yourself to godliness. You have to put in the thousand hours. And that applies not only to mastering that sport or instrument, but it also applies to spiritual matters. Learning the art of forgiveness. How many of you have spent a thousand hours asking for forgiveness? How about reading your Bibles? How many of you spend a thousand hours this year reading your Bibles? Or in prayer? Or in training your children? You see, learning to think and feel and act like Jesus to walk in the Spirit is at least as demanding as learning to run a hundred meters. Perhaps at this point it will be important to remind you that Paul earlier in Romans clearly described the first part of the Christian life. He said, God's initial work was to transform your spiritual nature and to bring you from death to life. And the Holy Spirit now indwells in you. He's instilled you with his purpose. He's working in you. That change is permanent. And because of God's saving work in you, you will always have access to a spirit. You can't go from life to death. For as Romans 5.10 said, 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? So every member of the Trinity is involved in the process of bringing you to glory. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to finish it. He is at work in you to will and to do his good pleasure. Those are all those fantastic passages that remind us of the activity of the triune God in our life. And we have the confidence that through the work of the Holy Spirit, the desires of the Father, and the intercession of the resurrected Christ, that God will preserve you. Right? And then Romans 6 and 7 introduce the second part. That is that continuous move towards pleasing God. It's a growth called sanctification, and it has that important component of personal responsibility. Everything is made possible because of God. He strengthens us when we call upon his aid. He provides what we need to work. He even actually motivates us. But we must submit to him, and we must keep our minds on the, on the spirit, and we must make that a priority. There is that goal at the end. So what are you training yourselves to be? It's my question for you right now. Think in your mind. What are you training yourself to be? Are you training yourself to be a wealthy businessman? Is that where your thousands of hours are going? Well, guess what? You'll likely become a wealthy businessman. Are you training yourself to be a super mom and a wife who can raise Seven children and manage the home and still have the energy to greet your husband with a smile? Well, that's what you will master. And before we move to the third conclusion, some of you may be saying, these are wonderful principles, and I believe that there is no condemnation in Christ. But I still struggle so much. I'm stuck in Romans 7. I wonder if the conditional statements, the times where Paul says, if the Spirit of Christ is in you, I wonder if they apply to me. Am I even truly his? And it's not that that's a bad question. In fact, Paul elsewhere says, yes, do examine yourselves to see the fruit of your life. And even here in this passage, many of his statements are warnings. But here's how you must combine the first and the second conclusions, okay? The warning to examine yourself is not a warning that you can lose everything if you don't live up to the standards of God. That is a slavery to fear. Instead, you are encouraged to accept the reality of being an adopted son or daughter of God and at the same time walking in the Spirit. Let me put it this way. In the Christian life, we don't passively absorb holiness. We do train, exercise our spirits. It's a painful, agonizing process. And while we do mature, our fleshy bodies will invent excuses over and over again for why we would rather sin, why we would rather indulge in those old habits of the flesh. But imagine the sinner before Christ saying, Lord, I want you to think of me as holy and perfect. Remember, you, you declared that. You, you justified me. I want you to think of me as holy and perfect. I just don't want to change what I'm doing. I would like to be saved in my sins. 
Don't sanctify me now, but definitely justify me now. And when I've had a chance to experience life, that's when I'll be ready to sacrifice. Because right now, it's too, that's too difficult. That would take too much. Children, what if your parents asked you to clean your room and you answered, I will later? How would they respond? They'd say, do it now. And as a Christian, can you expect anything different from God? You can no more separate justification from sanctification than you can separate breathing and, and living. and You can't have one without the other. And Paul says simply, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, then you will walk in the Spirit. You'll fail at times, chapter 7. You'll often do what you know you shouldn't do, but you will mature. You will grow. And if you are a believer who is sinning, God will discipline you. You will feel uncomfortable. You will feel racked at times with guilt for compromising obedience to God in your life. You will agonize like Paul does in Romans chapter 7. You won't just live life as usual. You'll be broken over sin. You'll be moved to repentance. You will be persuaded that walking in the Spirit is God's will for your life. Is that you? You have to be convinced of the words that we find in Hebrews 12, 14, that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And just as you once gave yourself over to habits of unholiness, what Paul called in Romans 6, 19, ever-increasing lawlessness or wickedness, every time you cheated, every time you lusted, coveted, hated, lied, it was easier to do the same thing the next time you developed those habits of patterns of sin. But now Paul tells you, that's what you did formerly. But now you are to give yourself to developing habits of holiness. You're to put on the new self. You're also to put off the old self. I exercise every day. A lot of you do the same. I go to the weight scale multiple times a week, and remarkably, it usually says the same thing. And I think to myself, that's not how it works, right? If you run every other day, and you bike every other day, and you use this new Total Gym Fitness that you bought during that time period, and don't you, aren't you supposed to lose weight and get to that ideal weight? And it keeps saying the same thing. And then I realize, wait a second. You can't lose weight without both exercise, putting on the new, and cutting back consumption, putting off the old. Right? It takes 25,000 stomach crunches to burn a pound of fat. That's nearly a month's worth of doing several hundred crunches a day it's easier to cut back 200 to 500 calories a day. Similarly, when you walk in the Spirit, you have to cut back on the consumption, friends. The sins that plague you. Don't just create new godly habits. Don't mix them in with the old. You have to be doing both at the same time. Put off, put on. And as you do that, first conclusion, remember, there's no condemnation in Christ. 
And I know that's a hard balance to maintain, the sense of working cooperatively with God, keeping our mind focused, disciplining ourselves, training ourselves to godliness, having that sense of responsibility and, and mourning over the times that we fail. I know that's the other side of the balance, but they're maintaining it with, but there's no condemnation in Christ. That's why at the end of chapter 7, it ends the way it does. And this has to be the mind of the believer. Oh, wretched man that I am, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Right? How many of you get stuck in the first half of that sentence? Oh, wretched man that I am. Oh, wretched man that I am. I'm so wretched, 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 wretched that we forget to say, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. What is it that you have to give up this morning? Is it a habit, a lifestyle, a pursuit? Are you willing? God did not begin a good work in you to start the, finish life, uh, start the Christian life. He began a good work in you to finish the Christian life. And everything that we've read so far in Romans, everything that God has done to awaken your mind to the futility of denying God, to change your heart, to love Him, to die in your place upon the cross, to indwell you, to give you the strength to serve Him, they were all done so that you could then walk in the Spirit and do so not with slavish fear, but with the reality of knowing I am an adopted son or daughter of Jesus Christ, of the Father. I'm a joint heir with Jesus Christ. And I have this grace-filled optimism knowing that he who is at work in me will finish what he started. A third and final conclusion from our passage is found in verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. God has committed to resurrecting his adopted sons and daughters. And just as Christ rose from the dead, so you will one day rise to eternity in God's presence. And one of the things that Easter always confronts us with is the horror of the cross. And in the spirit, if you will, of our passage, which flows out of Romans 7 and into Romans 8, I want you to think of the horror of the cross as the, oh, wretched man that I am part. Okay? That's what led to the cross. That's why we read things like Isaiah 52, Behold my servant, shall act wisely, you shall be high and lifted up and be exalted. And many were astonished at you, parents so marred beyond human semblance in his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Or 53, 2, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. Despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Do you hear the, oh, wretched man that I am? This is what Jesus went through because of those sins. He was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Pierced for our wretched man and woman transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement 
that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. Because we are like sheep who have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. But the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet He opened not His mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, sheep before its shears is silent. He opened not His mouth. By oppression and judgment, He was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. That's the cross. That's the old wretched man part. It's what caused Jesus to make it so that you are no longer condemned. And yet, as the last few verses say, it was the will of God to crush him. Why? What does Isaiah say? When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Contemplate that for a moment. When his soul is made an offering for guilt, the soul is dealt with the wretched man that I am part. He shall see his offspring. Who are his offspring? You. You are his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see what? His offspring. And be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. So friends, yes, there is the whore, there is the wretched man that I am part, but it is eclipsed by the thanks be to God for Christ Jesus. It is eclipsed by the good news that God was even greater than our sin. The 17th century Puritan Thomas Wilcox wrote a book titled Honey Out of the Rock. And in it, he talks about the grace of God. And here's something he wrote. He says, the greatness of Christ's merit is known best by sinners in deep distress. The thirstier a man is, the more he will prize a cup of water. The more our sins break and burden us, the more we will treasure our healer and deliverer. And I'll quote one more author, this time Jerry Bridges from the book, The Bookends of the Christian Life. He writes, we share something in common with the sinful woman of Luke chapter 7. Our tears, our anointing oil don't earn us a thing. They simply express our gratitude for the overwhelming way Christ has loved us in the gospel. As I continue this quote, I want you to start putting your mind together those three conclusions. The conclusion of no condemnation in Christ. The conclusion of the fact that we must walk in the Spirit and set our minds on the prize, training ourselves to godliness. And third, that God has committed to raising His adopted sons and daughters. Let's put this all together by realizing our tears and our anointing oil don't earn us a thing. That was Romans 6 and 7. 
They simply express our gratitude, the pivot point from a wretched man I am to thanks be to Jesus Christ, our gratitude for the overwhelming way that Christ has loved us in the gospel. We have been forgiven much. We've been freed from much. We've been blessed much. So we love him much. Though not nearly as much as we, he deserves. We continue to sin every day in ways that if not big and scandalous are nevertheless offensive and grieve his heart. And amazingly, he continues to love us and keep us and treasure us as the apple of his eye. And Paul has been spending the first half of Romans asking us to understand these things. As Wilcox and and Bridges imply, don't be reluctant to feel thirst for grace, for rescue, for it points you to living water where you can delight in every drop that God provides. And when your conscience which once was seared, but now to the cleansing grace of God has been awakened. When your conscience looks at the law, it reminds you that you were sinful beyond measure. Thank the law for that reminder. Commit to walking in the Spirit, but then thank the Lord that there is a deliverer who has already delivered you. A healer whose stripes have already healed you. And because of this, the risen Christ is your all-surpassing treasure and your perfect hope. There is no more condemnation. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the beauty of your word. Thank you for what Paul has been doing in this chapter, or in this whole book, of helping us to see the full depravity of our sin and and then to see that the very thing that so many have put their hope on, the being a person that lives up to the rules, that adheres to the law, to realize that the law, in fact, only increases our sin. And there we were, left without hope. And then we were reminded of what Jesus did. And not only did Jesus die for us that we might be forgiven, but he lives for us that we might be sanctified. He lives for us that we might be glorified. He lives for us that we might taste true joy in this life and realize that there is no condemnation in him. Thank you, Lord, for those words and those lessons from your word. And I pray that you would encourage us this day, this day among days in which we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and are looking forward even ourselves in expectation to the day when we too will rise to glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.